WSLstore.com is powered by Shopify. We love the analytics we can check on the go. A lot of us are addicted to checking the Shopify app on our phones. We also love the automations and marketing integrations with our social and YouTube channels. It has incredible features to help us manage our global audience, including international taxation support and great shipping optionality. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek skis, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lineup, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lineup now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lineup. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the lineup with Dave Prodan. I'm Dave Prodan, and this is episode 134. So while the CT and CS have finished for the year, we still have our regional QS events, the big wave season wide open, as well as specialty events like the Vans Pipe Masters, all percolating out in the world before the new year. And then we have the WSL Junior Championships at Seaside in San Diego, the WSL Awards, and the 2023 CT season kickoff with the world's best surfers at the Billabong Pro Pipeline in prime wave season, all in the month of January, which is another way of saying action is right around the corner. For now, though, we can reflect on the year, enjoy some non-competitive fare. Be sure to check out Noah Dean's Nosvid on Stab if you haven't already. It is excellent. And try to get some waves for ourselves. All right. Episode 134. Today's guests are people who are so ingrained into the fabric surf history that the ripple effects of their respective lives have touched virtually every surfer on the planet. For one, his style and fearlessness became synonymous with the most dangerous wave on the planet in a way that no one has ever been able to replicate since. For the other, he was part of the culture-shifting skating phenomenon of the 1970s, then became an acclaimed filmmaker responsible for documenting the movement with Dogtown and Z-Boys. In recent years, these two have linked up for a project and their new film, The Yin and Yang of Jerry Lopez, will begin streaming live at patagonia.com jerry starting tomorrow, December 14th. We talk about all this and more. Please enjoy the lineups conversation with the Jerry Lopez and the Stacy Peralta. The good old clap, take one. That's right. 
How many of you knew what you wanted to be when you were seven years old? I did. I wanted to be world champion. Hey, is there honesty involved in this podcast? Can we be honest? We can shut your fucking lips. And then I'll just say, put them up once. Let's go. He's like, you look too pretty on the wave. Get ugly. We can talk about DMT if you want. I'm boxing. All right. We have none other than celebrated storyteller Stacy Peralta and Mr. Pipeline himself, Jerry Lopez, on the lineup today. Um, gentlemen, it, it is a true honor, and, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. So before we get into uh, today's conversation, I always like to do a little bit of a scene setting. So, you know, how are, how are you both doing? You know, where are you at right now for our current conversation? Jerry, why don't we start with you? Where are you at today? I'm in Bend, Oregon, um, getting ready to leave for Japan tomorrow. Oh, very cool. Well, we appreciate you fitting us into your schedule. And, and Stacy, where are you at today? I'm at my house in um, in California on the you know on the coast, doing this with you guys. <laughs> well, we are here to discuss your upcoming film project, The Yin and Yang of Jerry Lopez, which premieres on September 22nd, and and listeners will be able to stream it um, on patagonia.com backslash Jerry. Um, I've been fortunate to see it, fortunate enough to see it a, a couple of times. It is um, incredible. So so congratulations to you both. Stacy. I, I want to start with you. Um, Given your background, uh, first as a professional skater, then a businessman, then a, a filmmaker known for many things, uh, including the documentaries Dogtown and Z-Boys, Riding Giants, and, and Crips and Blood Made in America, it seems like your particular storytelling palette gravitates towards largely niche subcultures, which I'd imagine can be really challenging to extract like singular stories out of. Is, is that a fair assessment? And, and if so... Why do you think you're attracted to telling those kinds of stories? Um, I didn't fit very well in Hollywood. I, I'm, I don't think I'm very representable. You know, I, I had agents briefly, very, very briefly, but they didn't know what to do with me. And so it just seems that I work better on the periphery. Um, I work, I don't know, it, it appears that I work better outside of that venue and outside of that venue, you get different projects, which are similar to the projects that I do. Um, that's just the way it's unfolded. That's the way my path has unfolded. That makes a lot of sense. And, and Jerry, I can't imagine that Stacy is the very first person that approached you about doing a documentary <laughs> on your life. Can you talk us through your relationship with him and, and how you decided to, to do this project? Well, it was a long process, and Stacy and I had talked about this a long time ago, and in this process of trying to put it together, um, at first it was Jack McCoy and I, we kind of came to a wall where we didn't know what to do, uh, how to make this film and I said okay we gotta see if we can get Stacy interested because if anybody knows how to make it he will and that was another long process too wasn't it Stacy <laughs> you know it was it's we've been talking about this for a long time and um when we finally got to a point where 
we kind of agreed and decided that, yeah, maybe let's, you know, get serious about doing this, then that was the start of another long process. And um, anyway, <laughs> it took oh. a while. And in that well, process, oh. I realized that that I, um, if Stacy wasn't going to be involved, then I wasn't going to do it. And um, I always felt that he was the only guy that could have done this film. Well, it was a, it was about six years ago. Jerry and Jack called me, and they were they thought they were close to landing a financier. And the financier was wavering. Hmm. And so they called me and said, hey, we feel if you would lend your name to this, maybe we could get this guy to sign you know, the check and we could get on with it. So a really good friend of ours, John McMahon, owns a house in the Hollister Ranch. We all met there with this proposed financier. Well, it turns out this guy actually didn't have money. He was the kind of guy that would find the money. So it was just one more step in a mess, Okay. Well, by that time, Jerry and Jack kind of hooked me in and I said, look, I don't want to make the film. I, I, did, I didn't want to get involved in a film at that time. And Jack really wanted to direct the film anyways. And I said, but I'll dedicate as much of my time as I can to help you guys find financing. So I spent a year trying to help them get this film financed and we couldn't get it financed. And so finally, after I think maybe a year or two, it, there just weren't any sources left. And so the film, like many of these projects, it just stopped. It just kind of like, it was put on the shelf. And then about two years later, Patagonia called. Now, Patagonia has a really tight relationship with Jerry. They make environmental films, but mm -hmm. they decided they wanted to do something that was outside of their comfort zone. And so they decided to make this film about Jerry because they already had a great relationship with him. He deserved a film because of the life he's lived. They thought, you know, let's try something different. And so they came to me and said, look, there's, we're just considering two people. You're our first choice. And we know Jerry would like you. And so would you consider this? And that's kind of how it happened. And so when they stepped into it, that was the first time we were guaranteed a budget. Like this is like, this is not going to fall through. And, um, that's how it happened. And that was, I don't know, that was about eight months before COVID, a year before COVID, maybe. And we all decided, okay, right. let's do this. And so we went back to Jack and said, look, Jack, we know you'd wanted to do this, but it's, you know, this whole thing has changed hands. And so we made sure to give Jack a position on the film out of respect for what he had done. I just want to share one thing. It's a funny anecdote. We, we, in, we have a, you know, it was a small budget. So we had to bring all of our interview subjects to us in one place. And we built a set of a shaping room on the Patagonia campus. The week we were there shooting all the interviews, we did seven days of interviews all day long, interview after interview, Yvonne and, and his wife showed up and they watched a number of the interviews over a couple of days, Yvonne Chouinard being the owner of Patagonia. Well, after that week, and it was a really great vibe. Everyone had a great time. It was really, really cool. Like people like Sean Thompson, Barry Kaniapuni, Tom Carroll. It was a really special place. Okay. Well, after that week, Chenard went back to the, his company and said, why are we making this film? This is not an environmental film. And so Patagonia came to me and said, hey, you got to come up with a reason why we're making this film and go explain it to our CEO. And I said, Hey, I didn't choose to make this. You guys did. 
And they said, yeah, but you're the director. You have to explain to them. So I had to do some very serious thinking about why they are making this film because they're an environmental company. But it really made me realize something. And it was a good thing that it happened because it is an environmental film after all, because it's about the inner environment of Jerry Lopez and how he has tended his environment beautifully his entire life. Granted, it's not about the exterior environment. It's not about mountains in the ocean, although they're in it. But it's really about a human being tending to his own inner environment and keeping that environment clean, healthy, and strong, and vibrant, and vigorous over an entire lifetime. So I pitched that to the Patagonia crew, and they said, you know what? That's acceptable. That works. And that helped us understand our film better because when you watch this, it's really about a guy who has been devoted to self-development his entire life, which is, you know, Jerry's life. I, I think that makes a, a very strong case. Now, it's funny you bring that week up because I was going to say prior that I've been at the ASPW cell for 17 years now, and I've had the benefit of working alongside, you know, Judge Davey Shipley, who's Jack Shipley's son. And and this is a few years ago that Davey reached out and he said, oh, I'm in town, I'm in Ventura. And, and you know, dad's filming these interviews for this project. And, and we, we caught up, we had dinner and he, I was really excited about it then. I'm much more excited about it now, but it, it, it doesn't sound like making documentaries is a quick process in general, but Stacy, I'm wondering how this one compares with some of the other ones you've made in terms of how long it's taken and just like time and effort. Um, they're not easy because you don't get a lot of money to make them. So you have to beg, borrow and steal a lot. You have to make a lot of compromises, which make it difficult. I also don't make a living doing this. So I have to work on the side to make a living while I do this. So it's a challenge in that regard. Um, but the, the most challenging part of making this film was Jerry's life's just too damn broad. There's too many chapters to it. I mean, mm. he was a movie star briefly, you know, he has the entire G land, you know, uh, Indonesia experience, which are totally different than the pipeline experience and the Alamoana experience. And then he's a 50 year shaper and he's also a 50 year Yogi. He has so many cross currents yet. That was hard is how to sequence his life. And that's that was difficult for us. The editing process in this film was very tricky. We also got hit with COVID, which split everybody into their own uh, kind of homes, which also delayed the process. And there was moments where we weren't even sure the film was ever going to see the light of day. It was very challenging. So, hmm. But really, the challenge of this film was uh, Jerry's life is large. And it was how to tell it in a way that's compelling yeah and for as expansive as jerry's life is when people see the film like the way you were able to thread that narrative it, it's still so so potent and even though it's very very dimensional you know and 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 jerry there are as we've talked about there's no shortage of talking heads in this project but the the caliber of contributors in this film are really a testament to the impact you've made on surfing as a whole. You know, we've, we've mentioned some of them, but you know, Sean and Michael Thompson, Randy Rarick, the, the ever reclusive Gordon Grubby Clark, Steve Pesman, Jack McCoy, Bill Boyum, the list goes on and on and on. Barry Kaniapuni. Barry Kaniapuni. Uh, yeah, of course. But, but Jerry, as you were working through that filmmaking process with Stacy, how much did you personally have to do with identifying the people to include to round out your story and then 
Did you have any concerns over what they may say? I, I can imagine that making this film is, is a pretty vulnerable process. Um, in the very beginning, Stacy said, you got to tell me everything. And I went, everything? And he said, everything. And I went, you mean all the sordid details too? He said, everything. And, you know, it was just another surrender in a great many surrenders in my life that um, is kind of um, cleansing in a way. And, you know, you can't ever control what people say about you. But most of these people, in fact, all of them are my friends. Um, still are. Um, <laughs> and some of the interviews were just highly entertaining. I mean, Rory was, as Stacy put it, a runaway train, you know. They turned the camera on. Stacy is probably, I've been interviewed, I don't know, thousands of times in my life. And no one does an interview better than Stacy does. And watching him, not only, you know, when he's interviewing me, but interviewing everybody else, it's just, it's like, I don't know, watching Rembrandt paint one of his pictures and um it was you know with rory <laughs> like stacy said there was like little control <laughs> maybe it was more like a jackson pollock kind of painting but um <laughs> it was really a fun process and you know uh stacy mentioned Ivana Melinda coming and and you know sitting on the sidelines and watching this a lot of these interviews and I think they were highly entertained too and um, yeah it was really kind of a, a a real learning process for me too about myself that um, you know <laughs> some of the things I heard I just went ooh. But those are mostly, you know, from my family. Um, and it was all good. You know, and the only regret I have in this whole process is that so much of that wasn't, you know, used, didn't get to be used in the film. And I think we could do a whole maybe a couple of films with just those interviews because they were all, every single one of them was really great. And, um, you know, some of them, we had people come back, like Rory came on one day and we interviewed him for a long time. And then he called me that night and goes, Hey, I forgot something. I got to come back and, and, tell you another story. So he came back the next day and that was um, even more entertaining than the first day. But no, it was all really, really good. And um, I think everybody there 
kind of enjoyed being there and being part of this process and, you know, getting to listen to all this stuff. And, and um, I liked it. Yeah. If, could I add something to this? Yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 We, you know, we created this set, we had a really good vibe. And one of the things we asked Patagonia is bring in really good food. So we had really good food brought in good lunches because we made it a place to really be. Good. So a lot of people that came for the interviews, when they were done with the interviews, they wanted to hang around and sit down and listen to the rest. So it created a vibe like Jerry was saying. But I also want to say something about Jerry. He didn't ask for any control, not one bit. He hmm. never once, the only time he ever questioned anything I uh, proposed to him is he would just simply say, you think that's interesting? But he never would say why. Like he just said, okay, everything was okay. He never once, he's never once looked at the film and said, hey, would you tweak this or that or this? Um, but I told him at the beginning of the process, because we were friends before this. And I said, look, as a filmmaker, I have to be critical towards you, but I don't want you to think that's me personally being critical towards you. So we have to get that understanding right from the get-go. I'm going to have to you know, ask you from time to time critical questions. And I want you to understand that's me, the filmmaker, and not me, the person. So. Because, you know, I'm a kid who idolized him and then I got to know him as a filmmaker right. and accepted into that orbit. And then we've, we we had we share a group of friends because we all learned to kiteboard together. So I, I have a, you know, a multiple angled friendship relationship with him. That makes a lot of sense. And Jerry, I, I like your your suggestion on releasing the extra content. Maybe we can get like a, after it premieres, we can get like a 20-hour director's cut where we get all those stories too. I'd, I'd, I'd watch it for sure. But but Stacy, you know, most of our listeners, they likely know your work um, from the, the seminal uh, Dogtown and, and Z-Boys that, you know, in part reflected that that symbiotic relationship between surfing and skateboarding, but maybe more importantly, it felt like you achieved something really, really difficult, which was to create a project that was celebrated, not just by the niche cultures of surfing and skateboarding, but something that also broke through to the mainstream. And in, in my experience, that is something that rarely, rarely happens. You know, you end up either making something that is for the core um, which, as we said, is sort of impenetrable to wider audiences, or you water something down for the mainstream, which is then shunned by the core. Um, as a skater and a businessman and a filmmaker, is this a tension that, that you wrestle with? And is it something that you wrestled with on this particular project? It's a really, really great question, because it's the one thing that I go into all these projects doing, going, how do I ride this um, how do I balance myself on this tightrope? Because I have to, it has to get those that are on the edgy part of the culture, but it also can't just get those because then the film's going to go nowhere. It has to be open to the, to the world. And so how do you do that? You, you've got to make it universal. And one of the ways that I try to do it is through my interviewing process. I don't let people speak in code. In Dogtown, I didn't let people speak in skate code or say ridiculous skate adjectives and things like that, because then people that don't know anything about it are going to watch this and not know what it's about. So, and you try to get the most, you try to bring out the intelligence in everybody and you try to talk about what, 
the commonality is between all of us, which is that we all want to do something. We all want to express our dreams. We all want to live true to our lives. And if you look at all these films, that's what they're all about. It's about people chasing their dreams and being true to their dreams in the face of odds, in the face of fear, in the face of um, a lot of difficulties. And so I think that's what they're all about. And I just try to make, I try to make them accessible. That's, that's it. I don't want these things to just be seen by five people, you know. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. You know, Jerry, as a lifelong fan, I actually think probably most everyone that started surfing, maybe forever, but like, you know, 70s, 80s, I started in the 90s, is almost immediately a Jerry Lopez fan by dint of what you've accomplished. But I would say that your life and legacy within the surfing world has been on pretty firm ground now for a long, long time. Um, and, and this film, in my opinion, cements that even further, but does so by adding some, what I'd consider pretty radical new dimensionality to your story. Um, but I think there's a risk maybe when you set out to do something like that, you don't know how it's going to land. I know you've talked a little bit about this already, but do you ever think of your own legacy and, and the potential risk that could come to it as a result of any project? And is that ever on your mind when you're kind of going through um, these kind of projects? I think the only thing that's on my mind is when I'm going to get my next wave. Um, no, I, I don't think I think like that. I'm kind of thinking about where I am right here and right now and you know what's gonna happen hasn't happened yet and obviously it will hopefully and um i don't know you know how much control i have over that and what's already happened is already done so no i think i'm uh I'm pretty firmly in the present. I'm, I've never even thought about a legacy. I mean, <laughs> should I? <laughs> well, well it, it, it is funny, right? Because it does seem like the people who never think about legacy are always the ones that make one, you know, in a way, because they're actually focused on the present. But I love that answer. Um, you Look, know, before we move on. And, and correct hmm. me if I'm wrong, Jerry, but Jerry was very aware that his peers were also getting their films. There was the Wayne Lynch film. There was other films about other famous surfers. Mm. And Jerry realizes that, you know, he was getting of a certain age that it might be time to get that done. But just from the time I've spent with him, he knows he's had this incredible past, but he doesn't spend time thinking about it because he's so focused on what he's doing next. He's constantly mm -hmm. learning new forms of surfing. And we all have the ability to think past or think future or think now. And it, from my observation of just watching him, he just he's aware of it, intimately aware of it. He just doesn't spend time dwelling on it. He's so because it it would take away from what he's doing right now. That's been my observation. Let, let me add one more thing that's remarkable about this guy. He's in his 70s now and he's been sponsored. He's been a sponsored surfer his entire life. He has multiple sponsors to this day. How how ridiculous is that? He he's still 
lives to surf and gets financially paid to surf. That's remarkable. That's a remarkable accomplishment. Every surfer on earth wants that. You know, it is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. But also well earned as well. Incredible. Like, and we're going to dive into that. We're going to dive into that in the next segment. Um, we're going to take a quick break to get a word in from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. WSLstore.com is powered by Shopify. We love the analytics we can check on the go. A lot of us are addicted to checking the Shopify app on our phones. We also love the automations and marketing integrations with our social and YouTube channels. It has incredible features to help us manage our global audience, including international taxation support and great shipping optionality. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek skis, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lineup, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lineup now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lineup. So... Typically in this part of the podcast, we like to go into the genesis and the biographies of our guests. However, since we're here to talk about your film, Jerry, I think it's better to discuss some of the themes and the elements that both fuel and are fueled by what we see in the movie, because they're really fascinating to me. And, and so, Jerry, I'll, I'll start with you. And I won't spoil anything in the film, but it does start with you apologizing uh, very, very sincerely. And I don't know really of any other biopic that starts with that kind of humility. I think yours <laughs> might be the first, but it, it really sets the tone for why this project is so interesting to me. And I think will be interesting to audiences. You, you really go there in terms of pushing back at how the, and this is drinking time for our listeners, the surfing industrial complex portrayed you for decades. And I, I think it's just this awesome example of self-humanizing, you know? And and was that something that you focused on when working with Stacy on this film? A kind of, not so much retconning of your life, but maybe just like fleshing out the dimensionality of it. <laughs> no, actually, I was really surprised when I saw the first cut Actually, I don't know if it was in the very first cut, but um, when I saw, saw that Stacy had used that, because 
you know, that was something that we'd kind of been interviewing for a while. And, um, you know, Stacy said, okay, you know, he exhausted all the questions he had. He goes, do you have anything else you might want to say? And I had been thinking about it, you know, and I went, let me just say this, you know, and I went off on that tangent <laughs> about uh, stealing everybody's waves. And, um, you know, <laughs> I'm not like that anymore, but I guess back then I was. So, I don't know. I really liked it. I thought, and I thought it was like, it was sort of, it encapsulated a lot of what the film was about, which is like shading in these different parts of who, who Jerry Lopez is. Now, Stacy, you came up in, in Santa Monica, um, you know, a member of the original Dogtown skate team and one of the first skateboarders on earth to land. I'm going to use air quotes here for all our listeners, but lucrative endorsement deals. Um, so you're probably one of the few people in history to exist, at least in a sentient way, in the pre and post eras of what would later be dubbed as the action sports industry. And I'd imagine you likely experienced firsthand the disconnect between who you really were and how you were marketed. Can you talk a little bit about your early career as a professional skateboarder and maybe how those experiences later informed your life as a businessman and a filmmaker? Well, the thing is, you know, I grew up on a team that also had Jay Adams and Tony Alva. And clearly I'm different than those two, even though we're from the same team, I was different. And I've, I've been asked many years, you know, why is there such a difference? And I finally came to the conclusion that I was one of the, I had a job. I've always had a job. Like my parents were really good to me, but they said, if you want extra things in your life, like surfboards and wetsuits, you got to get a job because we're not making that happen for you. You want a car, you got to make it happen. So literally, I've had a literal job since I was 11 years old. And so when skateboarding came along and somebody told me that they were willing to pay me while I snuck into people's backyards and rode their empty pools, I took that really seriously because I thought this is the greatest job on planet Earth. I'm getting paid to do something that I would be doing anyways but they're paying me more than even my parents are making at their professional jobs. So I was a little bit more serious than my peers. And I also realized uh, the frivolity of my professional career, meaning that I knew it wasn't, it had a very limited um, shelf life. And I started looking about thinking about, I got to do something after this. I don't want to go sell car insurance or something like that, or, be a real estate agent. I want to be in skateboarding. And so while I was in my professional career, I started thinking about, I want my own company. I want to be a part of a company. And so I was thinking about that in my professional career. So by the time my professional career was over, I had that all set up. And I attribute that to because, because I, I, that I attribute that based on the fact that I was so aware of how unique a position I was in and how I didn't want to blow it. I just didn't want to blow it. I didn't want to mm. get to the age 30 and look in the rearview mirror and go, you blew it. You could, you had a chance. And I was acutely aware, and I don't know why, but I was acutely aware of the possibility of that happening. Right. And you mentioned, I'm going to go back to something you mentioned earlier, Stacey, just about 
not being able to completely fit in in Hollywood or sort of in the agency world and, and a lot of what you do document documentary wise, there we go, um, is, is really focused on like truism and truth and, and reflecting as comprehensive an image of reality as possible. Did any of your early experiences as a professional skateboarder like inform that? Did you ever feel like you were marketed as something you weren't? And, and did that kind of lend itself into how your business sense went when you became a businessman yourself or even a, a filmmaker later on? No, it's not how I was marketed myself, but I'll tell you one thing. When skateboarding blew up in the 70s, there was tremendous pressure from consumer advocates warning parents against the dangers of skateboarding. There was even um, there was even a guy that would appear on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson holding skateboards saying, don't let your kids do this. So what happened was the manufacturers in skateboarding got people like me to become like soldiers of safety. So that I, we would do demos and encourage mm -hmm. these kids to wear their helmets and pads and all this stuff. And I bought into it because I could see that like this is something that's needed. But the fact is, is that skateboarding did not want to go that direction. And so I self-corrected at some point and went, wait a second, we're making a mistake here. We can't cram this down these kids' throat. It's, it's not how they want to do it. And if you look back at the arc of skateboarding, barely anybody even wears pads anymore unless they're doing the most dangerous things. Hmm. It just isn't how the sport wanted to be. And at some point in the late 70s, early 80s, I came to the realization, we have to stop thinking about what we think this sport wants and start listening to what it wants to become and stop projecting what we think hmm. upon it. And that's that was the turning point for me, that right there. That's really interesting. So. Jerry, there's a moment in the film where the talking heads, they're reflecting on this, this period of, of the late 1960s, early 1970s, where you're competing at the U.S. Championships in Huntington Beach, and you know, you're nailing the cover of Surfer Magazine at Alamoana Bowls. And the talking heads are saying that this was foreshadowing of what was to come. And I was watching it, and I'm thinking about it, and I, I break out my cocktail napkin math, and I'm realizing that you're already in your early 20s at this point you know you'd gone to college you'd had you had a job and and i was struck by you know these things seem like such a departure from where modern surfing is in that any mention of foreshadowing seems to happen when a surfer is in their early teens you know if that and and i think about this a lot both in my day job as head of strategy for the WSL and on this podcast and i and i have to think that Allowing kids to be kids, allowing them to make mistakes, have experiences, become arguably more put together people before the money and the fame comes in actually benefits everyone, including their sponsors, just in terms of allowing them to be successful and peak in a way, you know, as true adults. And, and kind of thinking out loud here, I wonder if this trend towards focusing on younger and younger surfers over the last few decades is something that you've noticed and and reflected on what that would have done to you had all that pressure been applied to you, you know, 10 years earlier in life? No, I think, you know, surfing has gone through so many changes as it's evolved into what it is today from when I started surfing. And I think there were a lot of kids, you know, that started a lot younger than me in my time. But, um, I mean, I started when I was 10 and, you know, 
that was that. And I wasn't really all that interested at 10 years old in anything, maybe. Um, and it took, you know, a while for surfing to really kind of percolate for me and, and um, for me to, you know, think that I wanted to be in any way serious about it because, you know, it was just stuff. One of the things you did with your friends and it was pure recreation. But, you know, what Stacy just said a little while ago, one of the things about surfing at that period, um, when he already was, you know, had a job as a skateboarder, the idea that someone would pay anyone to go surfing seemed ludicrous to me. And I mean, for a long time, you know, I never considered the fact that anyone would ever pay me to go surfing. Um, there were a couple guys that were making money from the industry, Corky Carroll, um, Mike Doyle. They had models with the surfboard companies they were with. And so they were, you know, paid a royalty. David Nueva made a tremendous amount of money off his surfboard models. Um, Stacy was being paid to be a skateboarder long before surfers were being paid to go surfing. And, you know, I think that's maybe a testament to how smart he is, but just <laughs> the, the nature of um, the differences between skateboarding and surfing and you know, it really wasn't until like Sean Thompson and Sean and Michael and um, Peter Townen, Ian Cairns, you know, they started saying that um, we're going to be professional surfers and people are going to pay us to go surfing. And, you know, I think all the surfers in Hawaii just laughed at them at first and they were right. And, you know, we were like way wrong, but it just surfing kept changing all the way along. You know, it was like a, a chameleon in a way. It just kept changing its colors. And, you know, when I was a youngster, I mean, my parents didn't want me to grow up to be a surfer. I mean, you know, that was not something any parents wanted. Um, now, you know, you're saying that, that kids are starting surfing at a lot younger age. Well, I think a lot of that has to do with their parents thinking well, he could be the next Kelly Slater. And, <laughs> you know, maybe there are a couple of, Kelly Slater's being born right now, but maybe not. I don't know if there's anybody can ever be a Kelly Slater except Kelly. No, I was just going to kind of add on to what you're saying, because I, I think it it's showcased so beautifully in the film too. You know, um, 
Keith Malloy was on the episode of a few weeks back, whenever, and he he had this comment from when he was younger about the idea of being a professional surfer, and he said like, look, I, I can. I can go hammer nails so I can go surfing or I can go surfing so I can go surfing. He goes, I want to go surfing, you know, so whatever allows me to do that more is the job for me. And, and it, you know, you were, you, you kind of developed at that really nascent point in the industry where you became a board builder and you're like, this is a great job because someone's paying me to build boards. And that means I can surf a lot. And it felt like most people were just kind of forming the industry out of that desire to think, okay, what's going to allow me to surf more? Well, exactly how it happened. And I mean, you know, we had Jack Shipley and I had our surf shop pretty much so we could go surfing when we wanted to. Um, when the waves were good, but I think everybody that was working in the industry, which wasn't really much of an industry back then, did it because what they really wanted to do was go surfing. And anything that had to do with the business of surfing, it was kind of understood by the customers of that business whatever it was, that if the waves were good, they might have to wait a little bit longer for whatever it was they were buying or getting. And that's kind of how it worked. And it was a beautiful thing. Let, let, me, add, let me add to this, if I can. Yes, please. Um, it's true what Jerry said about Mike Doyle and, and Corky Carroll and David Nueva, that that was kind of like at the end of the 60s, if I'm not mistaken, by the by the 70s, by the time this movie, you know, the, the era upon which this movie is, you know, in, the three most famous surfers in the world are Jerry Lopez, Barry Knaipuni, and Jeff Ackman, okay, with Reno Abalero right next to them. Those are the th most famous surfers in the world. Of those three, Jeff Ackman's the only one that made any money. He made probably 10 grand one year, I think, from endorsements and contest winnings. The second two, Jerry and Barry, they had to make their living being shapers. There was that little organized surfing back then. The other thing I wanted to say is Tony Alva, Jay Adams, and myself, we were competitive surfers. We wanted to be professional surfers. That was where we were going. We didn't even consider ourselves skateboarders. That was just something that we did to supplement our surfing. But, of course, the urethane wheel was invented and the board we were riding didn't have fins. It had wheels, which was going to take us to our future. We just didn't know it. Totally. And and I love this part in both films, the, the Dogtown film and, and the Jerry film, Stacy, where it's just so deftly put together, like like illustrating where capitalism and commerce collide with subculture and something really special you know and it, it they feel almost note for note you know if when you compare the two um you know retelling of of what happened in um dogtown and z boys around the same time unless i'm mistaken but it did you see as a filmmaker like a lot of similarities when you were chronicling like okay the industry's picking up this is what's happening to these figures you know whether they were skaters and surfers or whether they're industry folks as the industry matured and, and, and there was a lot of teething happening, did you see a lot of similarities in how you told both segments in both stories? And, and 
if so, you know, what were they? And, and if you had any differences, what would those have been as well? Well, these, if you look at these sports, they all evolve the same way. It's all the same acts, act one, act two, act three. If you look at the, you know, mm-hmm. the acts of each clothing, surf clothing company, act one, act two, act three, they almost do the same thing, everybody. Human nature is very predictable. And so skate, the arc of skateboard and the arc of surfing as far as organized skateboarding and organized surfing has been very, very similar. Suddenly money comes in, sponsorship comes in, more shops open up, more need for product, more opportunities for people to be paid, bigger contests, bigger sponsorships. It's just a, it's an evolution, but they all do the same thing for the most part. And skateboarding was modeled off of surfing. We had a magazine, Skateboarder Magazine, that was a stepchild of surfer run by the same company. We had a lot of uh, skateboard manufacturers that began as surf manufacturers, Gordon and Smith, Larry Gordon. So there was a connection to each sport and how they evolved because it was the same people in many, many situations. And because we're cross fertilizing, you know, even though I was skateboarding, I was still aware of what Jerry was doing and going to surf films and surfing myself. So this cross pollinization was happening. You know, we weren't paying attention to bicycle motocross. We were looking at surfing and skateboarding. Right. That's interesting. Like they were almost using the same playbook as they built both of these. Yeah. Kind of and, and if you look, if you look at the, if you look at all the skateboard videos that I made in the eighties, they're all just takeoffs of surf films. It's like I, I learned at the feet of Hal Jepsen and Greg McGilvery and Scott Dietrich. And so when it was my time to start making skate videos, I just did the same thing that I grew up seeing. I wasn't aware I was doing it. But now that I look back, I went, oh, I see. I was just following what I had grown up seeing at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium. Hmm. That makes sense. Jerry. Um, Stacy mentioned how expansive your story is. There's so many different dimensions and so many different places, but two of the real focal settings in the film are Hawaii, you know, both the South shore with your upbringing and the North shore where you became a legend. And then Indonesia, both the Island of Bali, particularly Uluwatu, um, and then the, the mythical Garajagon, um, and, and this sequence in the film is just so arresting and beautiful and everyone should see it. Um, having had the privilege to go to G-Land this year for the CT event, one thing that I experienced on a much smaller scale um, but really resonated when I watched the film is the idea that you can go somewhere and eliminate these distractions and be very, very present. And, and by doing that, how much deeper that makes everything feel. I would imagine that at that point in your life, your your study of yoga, not just the physical, but the mental and the spiritual, had really primed you for this kind of experience. Can you talk to us a little bit about both your life with yoga and, and, and how that influenced your time in Garajagon? Well, <laughs> you know, it kind of all started with the endless summer. The whole idea of you don't have to just surf in front of your house or, you know, where you live or where you usually go surfing near your home that you can travel and go surfing. And, you know, when we first went to Bali and we had no idea 
that, I mean, we had some idea. We knew that there was good waves there, but we had no idea how much that would affect our personal lives. And Jack McCoy had gone the year before and he told Jeff Hackman and I, you know, the first time and uh, Jeff was kind of a tough sell, you know, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I want to go there or not. And <laughs> he ended up going and, and Indonesia really became a big part of all our lives from that point forward because, you know, not only the surf was real consistent and really good and the kind of waves we really liked, but the lifestyle was, um, you know, I guess I know we talked about it at one point and thought in those early days in Bali, this must have been what Hawaii was like a hundred years ago. And, you know, here we are, we got modern surfboards and, and uh, there's nobody here. And, you know, this is about as good as it gets. And it just opened up a whole world of, okay, you know, you can surf so many hours in the day, which ended up being most of the hours of the day. But then you have to, you know, really kind of get organized about the rest of the hours, you know, and, and yoga had been a big part of my lifestyle already. And really the entire, well, my entire surfing lifestyle was really based on the yoga lifestyle, which, you know, obviously the first thing is proper exercise. And, you know, the other parts of that was, um, proper breathing, which <laughs> we did a lot of anyway, um, a lot of heavy breathing, you know, in the waves, um, proper relaxation, proper diet, and positive thinking. And that was something that really seemed to fit well with the lack of distractions that we found in Indonesia that didn't get in the way of, of our surfing like they did at home. Um, you know, I wasn't building surfboards in Indo, so I didn't have to think about that part of my life. Um, all I was thinking about was going surfing and doing everything that I could to be able to do that in the most efficient and effective way possible. And it really just kind of happened on its own like that. Worked out. Right uh, can, can, a lot of people really talk about that sequence, the, the Indonesian sequence in the film. And when we cut the sequence, I didn't want any outside voices making comments upon it. You know what I'm saying? I didn't want to have Michael Thompson or Sean Thompson or Randy Rarick talking about the bigger picture. I just wanted it to be Jerry's thing. But Michael Thompson did have a really, really astute soundbite 
that I did want to use, but if you're not going to use outside voices, you you can't. So I had to leave it. But but he said he goes Jerry's trips to Indonesia and G Land specifically were so profound at that time in surfing that he himself, his life as himself, became a brand of what surfers wanted to become mm. because he was going there every single year. It was extremely rugged. It was extremely dangerous. You had to pre-plan everything like a military, but he was living the life that every surfer ultimately dreams of, which is to find nirvana in the surf that's away from everything else. And Michael just summed it up in this beautiful soundbite that I would have liked to have used, but again, it would have changed the tenor and the tone of that sequence. Mm -hmm. But I've, I've never forgotten that, how he said that just Jerry's example of how he lived his life became such a touchstone for future generations based on that experience. That's really interesting. It's something I had seen the film before we went out there this year and then watched it again recently. And it was something that was on my mind a lot out there. And obviously a lot's changed. There's you know, camps and internet and iPhones and all sorts of stuff. But a question for both of you, um, obviously things have changed a lot where it's become very, very difficult to find that space and that place to disconnect and to not be distracted. Do you think it's impossible in 2022? And if not, how do you both seek it out? Just just having clear space to, to, to be present in a way. Jerry, I'll, I'll start with you. You don't want to let Stacy go first? Stace, you, you go. <laughs> um, it is possible to Stacey, find it. It's yeah. possible to find it because ultimately exists within all of us. In, inside all of us. And so what I do is I meditate at least for one hour every day. I try to hit two hours. I don't always succeed at that, but my meditation practice is the most important part of my life hmm. for that very reason, to find that place of stillness, of quiet, right. and to uh, dissolve. You know, it's every time you meditate, it's like peeling in the onion of your um, ego, you're release. You're getting rid of more and more and more and more of your ego. It's a very slow process. It's a very long process, but it's a very important process. At least for me, it is. Mm. You know, life is moment to moment. I mean, it's one moment after another. They're all connected. Yeah. And all we can really do is try to have the intention to live each moment to its fullest. And, you know, sometimes we're very successful at it some days and other days we're not. But it's like that, you know, every day the sun comes up and you start a new day and you get to do maybe what you didn't get to do the day before or um, at least think about it. And, you know, what Stacy says is, so very true that all these moments all exist within us and our whole I think it's more of a Western mentality is so external that it makes it difficult for for us you know to to look inward to to be inward in our thinking and this is something that we have to learn to do because 
there's really a lot of good stuff in there that uh, it's just waiting to be discovered. And there's still, I think every surfer, you know, if he really takes a good look, realizes and understands there's still those beautiful moments. Maybe they're not, um, you know, six weeks long, 24 seven, like they used to be in those early days in G-Land. But there are times, you know, where it is as beautiful as it ever was. And we just have to savor those moments when we experience them and, and you know, realize that, wow, okay, this is as good as it gets, man. Oh, now that's over. Okay, now I got to go back to the grind. but. I think the reassuring thing is that there's another one of those moments up ahead and eventually we're going to get to it. Yeah. I just to add to what Jerry's saying, um, he and I have a similarity in that, you know, Jerry's done every form of surfing, you know, um, longboard surfing, shortboard surfing, tube riding, windsurfing, kiteboarding, and now he's in the, all the forms of foil surfing and SUP, the whole thing. I've done a lot of these things myself and continue, but in, in, what, in regards to what we're speaking of, my goal someday, and I'm starting to work on it now, is to learn to go out and ride the worst surf, including just whitewater, and having that be enough. The one thing I don't like about surfing is I don't like the fact that I need it to be good. That bothers me. And I want to learn how to surf. I want to learn how to enjoy surfing if I even only get whitewater. I really do. To me, that's enlightenment. I think that's beautifully said by both of you. We're going to take uh, one more quick break to get a word in from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. Stacy, while you mentioned that you didn't quite you're probably square pegged into Hollywood. You, you're certainly no stranger to it, having grown up in Los Angeles, but neither was uh, Jerry. You know, Jerry ended up developing a relationship with um, Apocalypse Now's uh, John Milius, who, who later brought him in on Big Wednesday, Conan the Barbarian, and so on. You know, this part of Jerry's life, it's featured in the film, but I'm curious if you, as a filmmaker, noticed, you know, an elevated sense of comfort uh, with Jerry when he was in front of the camera working on the project. I don't think it, I don't think Jerry's Hollywood experience has anything to do with his comfort in front of the camera. I think Jerry's, Jerry's been photographed his, his whole life so often and for so many decades that he just simply understands how to do it. He's been interviewed so many times that he understands how to do it. And so he has a natural comfort. He just knows I've even watched him. I was on a surf trip with him uh, a, few, a number of years back. And there was a very famous photographer, Dana Edmonds, that was with us. And Dana would go out and shoot Jerry. And just the way Jerry worked with Dana, even walking along the beach, he just understands what he needs to do. He does it, doesn't make a big deal about it, but he understands it. It's, it's part of his business. It's part of his responsibility and it's his life. And so it, it, he learned early on that the camera is part of his life and it's an important part of his life because it's how he makes his living. And he has to 
understand it and be good to it in return because the camera has been very good to him. You know, all of us that were that made our living off of surfing or skateboarding had to at some point understand this process. Even Jay Adams was he understood the camera like Marilyn Monroe. Seriously. And so it's just something that comes with the terrain. Some guys get it. Some guys don't. And those who do have longer careers. Mm. Life's a stage kind of thing. You know, Jerry, you've got this great line in the film where you're talking about living in Los Angeles and, and pursuing acting, you know, frankly, as a lot of surfers, whether it was Duke Kahanamoku or Peter Town, and they've done in the past. Um, but you're talking about, or at least implying, you know, partying in Hollywood and you say, I was old enough to know better, but dumb enough to still do it. And that really resonated with me. <laughs> so like any time I'm like, like, come back from a night out and I don't feel great. I'm like, you know what? This is like the exact way I feel. But, you know, for all your success in life, whether it's within surfing or in yoga, it still seems like you, as we all did, we still all have to kind of learn some lessons the hard way. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, getting in a way, kind of just getting stuck in the L.A. rabbit hole for a period of time? Well, I mean, I think, you know, we all get caught up in belief systems that we believe we have to have these things. We have to do these things. And that's part of the process of learning about yourself that, you know, Whatever it takes at some point when you don't get to have these things or do these things, what happens to you? And I guess really the answer is really nothing happens to you. And so why do you have to have them or, you know, think you need them? And it's, you know, it's it's a, a funny thing that. I mean, we're all a victim of that and we all get sucked into that. And it's, um, I guess it's not what we really think it is. And, you know, I've had a lot of friends that have had issues with, for instance, substance abuse. And, you know, they had such a great, campaign for a long time that said, just say no. And, you know, on one hand, it is so simple and easy. But then, of course, on the other hand, for some people, it isn't. But the reality is, it is easy. And that's one of the great lessons in life is that you know, some of the most difficult answers are actually really simple. And it just, I guess, takes time, you know. And, and you know, in my um, yoga practice, all the way along, just, you know, with my friends and later on with um, instructing, you know, I've come to realize that yoga, like surfing, in fact, you know, they may be exactly the same path. It just 
it happens differently for every person. And usually the way it happens is that it has to happen at the right time for that person. And if it's not the right time, it's not going to happen. And there's not really anything you can do about that except <laughs> wait for the right time. And that's just the way it is. You know, some things just don't happen like you think they're going to happen. My son, for example, he, you know, I took him surfing when he was eight months old. And I thought, oh, man, he's going to be a surfer. But then he wasn't that interested. And, you know, we moved up here to Bend, Oregon to be, I don't know. At first, I think the beginning was just because we liked snowboarding so much. And, you know, he was still very young, so he wasn't that interested yet. But eventually he did get interested and he became, you know, a really top-level snowboarder, I mean, a professional. And he wasn't interested in surfing for a long time. And then, you know, I didn't think surfing was something you wanted to ever pressure anyone into doing. And I see or saw that happen a lot with young kids that, you know, had a bad experience and then they never wanted to do it again. And I didn't want that to happen for him, but he was getting older, you know, and he still wasn't interested. And, you know, I mean, he was interested on a very superficial level, you know, it's a recreational thing, but he wasn't interested in getting serious about it. And I never pushed that. And Stacy was there in the beginning when we went um, to this place in uh, Mexico that some friends of ours have. Um, it's kind of like a surf resort. It's called Cardona, really great spot and, a, you know, a great wave that I thought, okay, if he's going to get interested in surfing, this is the wave that's going to do it for him. And at first it didn't, you know, and, but eventually um, it did. And it just, it was a process that, that had to happen in its own time, in its own space for him. And it really made me realize that that's kind of the way everything in life is supposed to be. You just, you know, if it's not the right time, it's not the right time. And when it is, it sense. is the right time. And then it's great. <laughs> I love that story. I think it was great. Stacy, you know, I'll 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 bring this conversation back a, a little bit full circle for the moment. Um and and again just praise your ability to, in my opinion, you know, radically dimensionalize, further dimensionalize one of the key figures in, in surfing history. You know, and I think in my experience, surfing, which in a way isn't much different to the way it works in politics or other sports or the entertainment industry, it has this weirdly insecure motivation to whitewash, you know, its heroes and figures to kind of like distill them down to these non-complex concepts of good and bad. And I think this kind of simplicity, it makes the digestion of these stories very easy, but in the medium and the long term, probably does us all like a big disservice, you know? And I watched the film again and it it showcases Jerry, you know, as both 
peaceful wave savant and aggressive lineup heavy. And as both yoga student and teacher and, you know, fallible human being. And that doesn't detract from the impression that I had of him before, but it really elevates it to new heights because, you know, I think of everything he was able to do, everything he was able to accomplish. And at the same time, I understand that he was very human the whole time. And, and that to me is so much more inspiring. Um, and I think you should receive a lot of credit for, um, you know, I, I really, really enjoyed the yin and yang and Jerry Lopez. And I think all of our listeners are going to enjoy watching it too. Well, the thing is, I'll, I will say this, I'll just say, I'll add this to it. Um, and this goes back to that comment I told when I said to Jerry at the beginning, I have to have the right to be critical to you without you taking it personally mm. from me. Because in order for people to understand him, they have to know the mistakes he's made in the past and how he corrected those mistakes. Because that's how people live through these films. They want to know what Jerry did. So when he, you know, when he told me that he had partied a lot and did a lot of, you know, uh, substance on the set of Big Wednesday. I went, oh, that's a moment. And then when he said to me, he realized what a mistake that was and went, great. We have to hit that because that's the point where the audience can go, I've been, I've been affected by that before. You know, there was the other part about, you know, the lightning bolt thing and where it tilted, you know, commercially and Jerry had to self-correct there. And those are the moments where the audience can come in and go, oh, he's human. He's like me. We show him learning to foil. Mm. And I don't think anybody's ever seen Jerry look like uh, America's Funniest Home Videos learning something, but they get to see that in this film. And what it does is it makes his great surfing at Pipeline and at G-Land even more deep because we realize maybe it doesn't come so easy to this guy. Maybe he's more like me than I think. So that's, as a filmmaker, that's what I had to search for in him because he's a magician, man. And you got to watch very carefully, you know, once in a while you can see the dice, but rarely. And so I had to pay close attention to just watching him and finding out where can I see that thingy, you know, because he does it so effortlessly, but it's not effortless. That's awesome. Well, guys, we reached out to our Instagram community at, at the lineup pod for uh, questions for both of you. And uh, we're inundated. We got a lot, but we, we whittled it down to, to one each. So uh, the first question, Jerry, is for you. It's from at underscore the underscore the Instafluencer, who asks, Jerry, what is your most memorable time living at the original Pipe House? Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. When I had to fix all the stuff that broke, <laughs> when I realized <laughs> that it was a sinking ship, that living on the beach wasn't all it was cracked up to be. And, um, no, I guess it was, uh, you know, when I got injured and I was, um, got speared in the butt by my board and I couldn't go surfing. I remember sitting there watching all the guys surfing and thinking, you know, just being a spectator of surfing is almost as good as actually doing it. Not quite, but almost. And it really made me understand the attraction of surfing to people that don't do it, that 
it's pretty cool, you know, that you can just sit there and get drawn in and spend all day watching it. I mean, you know, watching waves is kind of like watching a fireplace. That's um, something that's pretty interesting too. But watching people surfing those waves is even more so. And that was something I learned at the pipeline house that I didn't know before. And it's always um, made a strong impression on me. That's a great answer. Uh, the second question, Stacy, is for you. It's from at I am Matson, who asks, Stacy, uh, what documentary have you always wanted to make that you haven't made yet? I'd like to make a, a documentary on marriage. <laughs> I, 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 okay, we're brought up in America to view marriage as a um, as a fantasy. It's like, oh, you met the perfect person your life's going to be great from this point forward. When in fact, it's exactly the opposite. You've decided to go into this agreement with this person where you're going to grow together for the next 30, 40, 50 years. It's going to be the most difficult thing you ever do in your life. But no one ever talks about that. We're, 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 we're led to believe it's a fantasy, but in fact, it's the most important thing that we're ever going to do in our life and the hardest thing we're ever going to do in our life but no one shares that with us. And you don't find out until you're in it. And then you think I must be failing at this because no one's ever talked about this mm. before. But then you start talking to people and you realize, wait a minute, everyone feels this way. This is really difficult. Well, maybe if we knew more about this institution, we'd be better at doing it. We'd understand it better and we would know how to walk through it better. Now, I don't think I'm going to make this film, but I would like to. And I don't think I'm going to because I don't think I'm ever going to get financing for it. So I don't, I don't think it's going to happen. But that's the one I'd like to make. That's a great answer. And I like what you said, too, right? Because sometimes whether it's marriage or anything, particularly in Western society or, or America in particular, like sometimes things are hard. And But when they're presented, as, as you said, this fantasy that's perfect – when they're bad, you're like, man, I'm not even middle of the road. Like, I, I'm I'm doing this really wrong. But as you said, the more people you talk to, whether it's about marriage or anything else, you're like, this is the standard. Why don't we just talk about this up front so we don't have these false expectations? I think it's a great well, thing. Well, also, if, if you Who look, knows? If, Maybe we'll get financing for it. If you look at Hollywood films, if you look at the great relationship films in Hollywood, the film ends all the time when they finally get together. They've been fighting the whole time. And they finally fall in love and they walk away. But it's like we never get to see them live it. We only get to see the lead up to it. And that's another part of the fantasy. The other thing, too, is when two people are together, one of them is always up and one of them is always down. I don't mean depressed down, but you're rarely in the same place. And so getting used to that dynamic between each other is really difficult. So there's a tremendous amount of material to mine there. But... It's one of those things. It's called yin. We'll see. I think that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there you go. <laughs> we've got we've got the title for it. Surely someone will finance yeah. it now. Well, I appreciate I appreciate both those answers. They were great, and I appreciate everyone that wrote in questions at the lineup pod. We're now down to our our final segment. This is the the lightning round. So this is the lightning round presented by BF Goodrich. 
So these are going to be 10 questions for both of you to answer as quickly as you can. Um, for organizational purposes, maybe I'll ask the question, Stacy, you answer, Jerry, you answer, then I'll ask the next question. First question. If you could only have one board set up for the rest of your life, a single fin, twin fin, thruster, quad bonzer, or finless, which would you choose? Thruster. Single fin. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Tea. Burrito or pizza? Burrito. Burrito. Last book you read? Uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, leave the Gun, Grab the Cannoli. What was the question? Last book you read? Oh. How to Change Your Mind? One wave you never have to go back to. <laughs> that's a really tough question that can't be in a fast round that's okay i feel like it might actually run counter to your philosophy on wanting to be completely content just writing whitewater so that's totally i know fine. so like, I, you know I, I, but that's the case I, I can't come up with a bad spot that's totally fine yeah uh jerry i'll pass that one over to you jaws <laughs> there you go if you only get to surf one wave break for the rest of your life Waikiki restaurants. Mm. Uh, best person to share a lineup with? Who's ever there? Friends. Worst person to share a lineup with? I, that would require. I'd have to. I'd have to mention a specific culture, and I won't do that. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> oh. I don't know. <laughs> that that's okay people usually demure on this one uh last one for both of you uh finish this sentence please i will next achieve a state of happiness by meditating standing on my head wonderful um Stacy Peralta, Jerry Lopez, it, um, it's been a true honor. Um, this conversation over-delivered in ways uh, I, could, I couldn't have ever dreamed of. So I really appreciate it. I want everyone to make sure you check out The Yin and Yang of Jerry Lopez, which will premiere online on September 22nd at patagonia.com backslash Jerry. And guys, uh, thank you once again. Um, I had a really good time. Thanks, Dave. You're welcome. Thank you. See you, Jerry. See you in LA soon. So that's it. That's the lineups conversation with Jerry Lopez and Stacy Peralta. Hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to check out their film, The Yin and Yang of Jerry Lopez, available to stream at patagonia.com slash Jerry starting tomorrow, December 14th. This episode is produced by Henry Beyer and Miguel Clemente with art direction by Jason Penning and copywriting by Dan Willen. Thanks to them and thanks to our sponsors. We appreciate their support. The lineup acknowledges that is recorded and produced on the ancestor lands of the Chumash, Kumaye and the Northern Paiute native people. I hope you safely get some waves wherever you are and we'll see you next Tuesday. Mm -hmm.